Good afternoon, everyone. Dr. Stillman here with another Monday Masterclass. Today, we are tackling the question, how much protein do you really need? This comes from a question from one of my uh, Substack premium subscribers. If you don't know, Monday Masterclass goes out on Monday afternoons, soon to be Monday mornings, to my Substack email list. And um, the premium people get a post that's behind the paywall later on in the week. And the Monday Masterclass is for everyone. But now if you're a premium subscriber, I am taking your questions. I get more questions than I can possibly answer in the Monday Masterclass. So I'm just picking the ones that I think are most important, pertinent, and popular. And this is one of the ones that I think is really critical for us to dive into. So how much protein do you really need? This was a question submitted to me by, as I said, one of my premium subscribers on Substack. And she sent with it a link to a video by Dr. Zach Bush, whose work I'm familiar with. Right out of the gate, just to be completely blunt, uh, I became aware of him some years ago, tuned into what he was doing, thought that it was very incomplete in terms of how he looked at the whole picture. And I still think it's very incomplete. And we're going to dive into how I tackle answering this question in my practice. And, and we're going to go through some papers to give you guys the background on how this really works. But at the end of the day, the bottom line with protein is that it has to be tailored to your goals, or we really have no idea what to shoot for. <clears throat> Most people coming to my practice are driven, high intensity people who badly want to perform at a high level and are often dealing with chronic illnesses that have left them feeling exhausted and depleted. And so generally speaking, we recommend them eating more protein than they've been eating because we find it incredibly impactful for getting them relief from fatigue, brain fog, inability or failure to lose weight, uh, all kinds of different problems from anxiety to headaches to you know, depression. I mean, I've seen increased protein intakes have life-changing effects on people. And I, I mention all this because if you don't understand what the person's goals are, you really have no business, in my opinion, giving them a recommendation of how much protein to eat. Once I've started to get to notice, know somebody, though, generally, I, I end up recommending somewhere between one and two grams of protein per inch of height. Okay, not by weight. Many people do it that way. I don't. I will use height because at extremes of weight, right, a 300-pound person who's 5'5", telling them to eat 300 grams of protein in a day, that's not feasible um, unless you're, say, a sumo wrestler or a serious bodybuilder. It's just not going to happen. Um, and that's part of why the goals matter. If somebody comes in and says, I would like to be able to squat 800 pounds and bench my entire family, well, you are not going to help them meet that goal if they are not eating huge amounts of protein. Now, on the lower end of that spectrum, that looks like, let's say, the average person in my practice, not average, let's just say somebody in my practice comes in and they're, they're five feet tall, five feet times 12 inches per foot is 60 inches. That's 60 grams of protein in a day. Many, many women are not eating even two thirds of that. Sometimes they're not even eating half of that. If you look at a lot of the longevity experts, they're going to say, oh, that's great. These people are going to live longer. Okay, fine. But what condition, what shape are you going to live longer in? 
And this often comes up in consultation with men who come to me and say, I want to live as long as possible. And I respond to them by saying, if you want to live as long as possible, the recipe is pretty simple as far as your diet goes. Calorie and protein restrict. And the rest of it is covered in the Blue Zones diets, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and that is your recipe for longevity as far as your dietary intake goes. But the problem with this is that most men don't come to me actually wanting to live as long as possible. I say to them, do you mean you want to live as long as is physically humanly possible? Or do you mean that you want to live as long as possible while having a full life and being able to pick your wife up and carry her across the threshold of your bedroom? And they say, uh, I want the second thing. I want to be able to pick my wife up. I want to be able to, I want to be active and strong and healthy and able to be full of life and, and get out of life what I want to get out of it, right? And this gets into what Jim and I call the trade-off between longevity and performance, which is a very real trade-off. We often say to people, look, you cannot tell us that you want your body to be like a Ferrari and then take it off-road. That doesn't work. If you want to go off-road, you need to be a forerunner. And sometimes we have to have hard conversations with people about how unrealistic their goals may be. And that's where protein and tailoring protein goals becomes really important. And we're going to talk about the literature on this today in our masterclass. Okay. Starting with the impact of dietary protein intake on longevity and metabolic health. This was published in the Lancet. It's one of their sub journals. I don't know. These big journals are having like sub journals show up that makes it all very hard to keep track of. And that's something I actually want to talk about. So the reality, if you haven't noticed, is that science is very much um, compromised by vested interests. And we've seen this in spades in the last three or four years with countless examples of corporate malfeasance and even in government malfeasance on behalf of corporations, because we all know that since politicians can determine what is bought and sold and what is said and left unsaid, the first thing bought and sold and the first thing to be policed in terms of speech are the politicians, right? So because of that, science has become extremely political, which means that you see a lack of nuance and a lack of understanding of these things in the scientific literature because it is so myopic in terms of its focus on uh, frankly, putting everyone on a low protein diet and you'll get papers like this that are technically correct and clearly written by researchers who never actually take care of real people in the real world who have real thoughts, cares, concerns, goals, and uh, in other words, a real life. Okay. So what do they say here? Lifespan and metabolic health are influenced by dietary nutrients. Recent studies show that a reduced protein intake or low protein, high carb diet plays a critical role in longevity slash metabolic health. Okay. Translation, lower protein, higher carb intake has been shown over and over again to go hand in hand with longevity and better metabolic health. Okay. But the devil in that statement is in the details. And there are a lot of details and caveats to that. So don't take that as license to go out and have a Krispy Kreme donut, which is a low protein, high carbohydrate food. Additionally, specific amino acids, including methionine and branch chain amino acids, BCAAs, are associated with the regulation of lifespan slash aging and metabolism through multiple mechanisms. Translation, methionine, branch chain amino acids, if you add these into the system, it has a very profound impact on lifespan and aging and metabolism. 
Methionine or BCAA restriction may lead to benefits on longevity slash metabolic health. Note the may lead to the benefits, okay? Moreover, epidemiological studies show that a high intake of animal protein, particularly red meat, which contains high levels of methionine and BCAAs, may be related to the promotion of age-related diseases. Translation, in some studies, we've seen that more red meat intake leads to more age-related diseases or is correlated with them. The correlation is not causation, just to be totally clear about that. Therefore, they propose a low animal protein diet, particularly a diet low in red meat, may provide health benefits. However, malnutrition, including sarcopenia slash frailty due to inadequate protein intake, is harmful to longevity slash metabolic health. Therefore, further study is necessary. I mean, these researchers, if you get, you got to understand, people do what they get paid to do. Researchers get paid to do research. They will never conclude a study without saying that more studies are needed. I don't have time to wait for all the studies to be in because I don't have an infinite amount of time to come up with actual recommendations for real world people who want advice on what to do about their life. Okay. This is actually really simple. And for all the wordsmithing that goes into this, we have to focus on the goals. And if you know how to read the literature and you look at these papers and abstracts, you know how to pick apart the goals, right? So if your goal is to live as long as possible, the data is pretty clear. You want to eat a relatively protein restricted diet. You probably want to moderate your animal protein significantly, and it may end up being an outright low protein diet. But if you are dealing with malnutrition, sarcopenia, which is lack of muscle mass, and frailty, same difference, and you need to actually put weight and muscle mass on, then eating a low protein diet is a great way to not get the results that you're looking for, which is why when influencers come out with stuff like this is how much protein you need, I cringe. And it's not because that may not be appropriate to do in certain contexts. Like if you only take care of women in Idaho who are trying to conceive a child and are relatively underweight, you may be able to get away with giving a very broad-based uh, recommendation for protein. I certainly do that in my practice because we, we select for people who are dealing with top three complaints, brain fog, fatigue, difficulty losing weight, Okay overwhelmingly, I find that these people do better on a higher protein diet for a period of time. But do I recommend that to them indefinitely? No. We're going to talk more about how this changes with aging as we go, but it's really important for you to understand. Before you tackle the topic or, the, or answer the question of how much protein does someone need, start by asking them what is their goal and why is that their goal? Oftentimes, you'll find that people's goals are conflicting. Newsflash, you cannot become or you are unlikely to be a high-level world-class athlete and the world's longest living person. We don't see centenarians or we don't see Olympians going on to become centenarians. It's not just a matter of statistics or rather I should say um, the sheer small number of centenarians. But if you look at performance, if you look at um, high-intensity pursuits, uh, careers, et cetera, there's often significant risk. And that risk is is not zero, right? Um, for example, if you're a fighter pilot, right, um, you have a non-zero risk of dying at an early age. You might be horribly injured as a result of your chosen profession, right? And that has real implications, right? So you have to think about these goals, right? I mentioned earlier that a lot of the journals have been, have been uh, troublingly uh, uh, sidetracked or compromised by vested interests. And this is not my opinion. Richard Smith, former editor of the British Medical Journal and chief executive of the BMJ Publishing Group for 13 years, 
wrote a long series of articles on this called The Trouble with Medical Journals. This was culminated in a whole book on this topic. So it's not just the world according to Dr. Stillman, and it's not just some tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theory. Okay. This is a really great paper. So this paper shows what I look at and think about when I'm dealing with people who are asking me how much protein should I eat. This article, The U-Shaped Relationship Between BMI and All-Cause Mortality, contrasts with a progressive increase in medical expenditure, a prospective cohort study. There's tons of studies like this. I picked this one because I thought it was really interesting the way they also tied this to expenditures. So from the abstract, the BMI and all-cause mortality relationship is U-shaped with concave region sitting in the region of BMI 22 to 26, but shifted rightward for the elderly. Translation, as you drop weight and your BMI goes down, after a certain point, your mortality actually goes up. So these women who come in who are 45, 55, 65, and their BMI is like 18, 19, 20, and everyone's congratulating them on not gaining weight, peri and postmenopausally, and they're so proud of themselves. I am so frustrated by the fact that they're proud of having a BMI that sets them up for early death and disease. Having a BMI of 20, it's 65, 75, isn't necessarily something to be proud of. You may be built that way, and you may be glad that you didn't put on weight, but you're setting yourself up for hip fractures. You're setting yourself up for sarcopenia. You're setting yourself up for early death and disability. And that's why the women with a BMI more in the low 20s or preferably mid 20s is really, really important. And that's why maintaining and gaining muscle mass, which we preach and teach about all the time, is critical. Okay. That's why we have a whole uh, program with Jim Laird where you can jump on a call every week with him and he'll help you understand what you need to be doing in order to be optimally physically active and to build and maintain muscle mass. That's called the Fundamentals of Wellness Course with Coaching Program. That's why we have a whole course with Jim called Jim Laird Strength and Conditioning Secrets. That's his whole specialty. And I love what he does and he gets our people great results. So BMI, ideally 22 to 26. Now this does change as you get older. And that's why they say it's, but it's shifted rightward for the elderly. So the elderly, you're actually better off having a BMI 22, maybe 23, maybe 24, maybe 25. This is called the obesity paradox. Yes, obesity sets you up for being sicker, uh, but it also actually sets you up for living longer to a certain extent. And I don't want to say obesity because it's not fair. It's just having a little bit more mass does set you up for a longer life. After excluding smokers and cancer patients at baseline, the low mortality region moved leftward to BMI 20 to 22. So 20 to 22 arguably is really, truly the ideal. Cause-specific mortalities from respiratory disease, injury, and senility increased in the underweight group below 18.5. Above 18.5 BMI was negatively associated with uh, mortality from respiratory diseases and senility, but not with others. In contrast, irrespective of age and gender, the overall median and mean medical expenditures progressively increased with BMI, particularly beyond 22, okay? Now, right in there, I don't want anyone to get the idea that I think BMI is the be-all, end-all. I, I have a love-hate relationship with BMI. It's easy for me to calculate. I only need a few numbers in order to do it. It's very robust in terms of the number of papers put out about it, which means I have lots of data to go back to to sort of analyze how I'm thinking about and counseling people with BMI. But if you look at people's body shapes, shapes, types, I tried to say shapes and types at the same time that came out shapes whatever. We'll put it in the bloopers reel. The bottom line here is that people have different structure. So I'm long and lanky and thin. 
So it's really easy for me to be 160 pounds. I have to work to be where I am right now, which is 175, 180. If you look at a guy like Jim Laird, who is our strength and conditioning coach, Jim is built like a fire hydrant. And there's almost nothing he can do about it. He is never going to have a BMI of 20 unless he becomes some kind of amputee, okay? Or maybe he has some vital organs removed, which we don't want. So you got to have respect for the fact that you're built the way you're built. And that's why there's this big range in BMI. And so don't get fixated on BMI either. Don't get fixated on the scale. You, the reality is the vast majority of people, if we really boil down what they want, for us to help them with as their team, coaching them through life, is they want to look good and feel good, which means having optimal body composition, which is a whole other conversation and topic, right? A lot of the recommendations for weight loss, for longevity, don't get people the results they want, which is why we don't just come out and tell everyone to follow the Blue Zone diet. It does not work for all people in all contexts and all situations, okay? Let's dig a little bit more into BMI because there's a really important concept that I want to show you guys visually, not just talk about. This uh, is a fascinating chart where it looks at you know the, the odds of being a medical ex uh, high medical expender. So you see the likelihood that you're spending a ton of money on your, your health care rises exponentially as your BMI goes up in these higher 20-something year old 20-something ranges. And it doesn't matter where you are in your phase of life, 20 to 40, 40 to 60, 60 plus, right? The heavier you are, the more you're going to spend after a certain point, right? But you actually see this drop initially from the 18.5 down to the 18.5 to 20 or the, or the 20 to 22, okay? And you see that across these age ranges and throughout whether you're a man or a woman. So it's really critical for people to understand that you don't just want to be thin in order to be healthy. You want to be in this optimal range and you cannot peg it to BMI because you're all different. As I like to say, every one of you is special, just like a snowflake and you all fall and you all melt in your own special way. This is a much better uh, graphic, I think, showing you how this U-shaped curve works, right? This is your hazard ratio of all-cause mortality. So the lower or lighter you are in the BMI, the higher your risk of death. And you go the opposite direction, the bigger and more overweight you become, the higher your risk of death. Isn't it interesting that across all subjects, you see this effect where the lowest mortality is actually here in this middle. And in fact, the people in 24 to 26 are lower, have a lower risk of death than the people in 20 to 21. Now, when you exclude smokers and cancer patients, it looks different. If you're not a smoker and you're not a cancer patient, this is what you should be shooting for, right? And that's where they get this recommendation of finding that 20 to 22 is optimal, right? Different studies are going to show different things. Again, don't get obsessed with fitting yourself into this little box because you're special and you might not need to fit in that box. But this is the general thinking behind how to look at this problem. If you look at the data on the blue zones, they have this very complex rubric where they talk about, oh, they only eat this and eat that, and it's tiny quantities. Generally speaking, I'm telling people to eat uh, things like fish, five to eight ounces, at least uh, three to five times a week to get their requirements for fish oil. Um, they recommend uh, way less, fewer than three ounces, up to three times weekly. And this is where I really have a problem with these ideas of, well, we all just want to live as long as possible. You find me, find me, I dare you, a soldier in a military unit 
who can perform as is required of him uh, to be for re optimal readiness to be able to fight a war, who can eat this diet. He doesn't exist. When you talk to people who are going through special forces selection, training for the military, they're high-level athletes, they're even mediocre athletes, this diet will not work. So if you have any kind of athletic bent, goals, aspirations, this is going to be a very tough rubric for you to follow. And that's why it's so important for you to address your goals. And it's important for you to accept the fact that if you're going to try and do big things like ultra marathons or climbing big mountains or being a special operator in a special forces unit or whatever, you may not be and, and make yourself less likely to be one of the longest living people on planet Earth. Is that worth it to you? That's a very personal decision. It's not a decision for your doctor to make. It's a decision for you to make in consultation with a cl clinician who understands you, cares about you, and can help guide you into making a decision that you're not going to regret. And that's going to help you meet your needs, which is what's most important about all this. Okay? One of the things I like about this is they do say drop your sugar consumption as much as, much as possible. They also mention that eating fish is important and that eating nuts is a good idea. I love these, these recommendations. I also love their recommendation of eating beans. Beans, legumes, lentils are an amazing food. They have so many nutrients. The whole lectin craze, people freaking out about that blows my mind. I put people on beans and lentils all the time, and they feel so much better on them because of a combination of, of factors, largely the folate, but also the minerals and a variety of other things. So this whole blue zone thing, it's about goals. What do you want? What's most important to you? You've got to dive in to understanding and exploring that in order to really understand what your intake needs to be. I also want to mention that they say here very clearly that this is what these people tend to eat, eat for most of their lives. Now, I want to just put it to you. They base this on the longest living people who are, for the most part, over 100 years old. Now, if you're 101, most of your life happened after the age of 50. Stop and think about that for a minute. Most of your life at 101 and one happened after the age of 50. Now, most 50-year-olds don't have a particularly high appetite because if they're women, they've gone through menopause, their sex steroid hormone levels have dropped significantly. Men have mostly gone through andropause, their testosterone levels have dropped significantly. What do sex steroid hormones require or increase your requirements for metabolically? Protein, calories in general, micronutrients as well. And so if you come to me and you say, hey, I want to be high normal in testosterone and I want to be 65 as a man, but I want to look like I'm 35 and be able to bench and deadlift what I did at, at 25 but I heard that I need to eat a low a protein diet and calorie restrict. I'm going to say there is no way for me to do that for you or for you to do that with any doctor, unless we do some really crazy things with hormones and peptides. And I don't think that's a good idea because you might actually get into more trouble than you bargained for trying to meet this really, what some would say is an unnatural goal of having a high normal testosterone at an advanced age and being able to perform at, at that level while also eating the amount of protein that might make sense for a 50, 60, 70, or even 80 year old. Okay. 
So hopefully this is not an overwhelming amount of information, but these are all the things you got to balance if you're actually going to come up with rational recommendations for how much protein someone should eat. Now, if you go through menopause and andropause without any kind of supplemental hormones or peptides, and you're just moderately active, particularly with a lot of zone two cardio, there's no reason you can't get away with a low protein diet because you're not going to be burning down and needing to build up a lot of protein or maintain a ton of muscle mass, which requires a ton of protein, right? So that's why they're seeing these people not just get away with this, but lead it, lead it to a very, very long uh, lifespan. Very important to make these distinctions. Otherwise, you get completely lost as to what you should actually be doing. Now, let's go back to the topic of meat because meat gets vilified, particularly by these really weird people who seem to think that we should all eat cricket flour and live in 15-minute cities and be happy about it, okay? Um, red meat's necessary for a variety of different levels of performance. If you're a high-intensity, high-powered CEO and you come to me and you're struggling with burnout and I look at, say, your urinary catecholamines and they're in the tank, um, that tells me that you are under a lot of stress and that we need to give you purine-rich meats and foods that are going to be loaded with things like tyrosine because you are in need of that badly in order to perform. And that's one of the reasons why I will pull the trigger on recommending more red meat to people and why I like lean red meat over fatty red meat because I know it has more tyrosine per pound. More on that later. Actually, to be fair, there's some old uh, premium content behind the paywall on tyrosine and protein intake that you guys should definitely dive into. That's why the premium subscription is so worthwhile on my Substack, which is stillmanmd.substack.com, just in case you didn't know. Red meat, processed meat consumption, all-cause mortality. What's the deal with this? So people will often say, oh, eating more red meat increases your risk of death. Okay, hold on. What does that mean? Let's go through this quick paper, uh, which was just one example of, of studies. This, this topic has been studied. I mean, so much. It's, it's ridiculous. Here's their conclusion that I think is as close to the truth as, I, as I'm comfortable um, committing to. In a dose-response meta-analysis, consumption of processed meat and total red meat, but not unprocessed red meat, was statistically significantly positively associated with all-cause mortality in a nonlinear fashion. Translation, the more processed meat you eat and the more total red meat you eat, the higher your risk of death. It's not linear. It's a curved or curvilinear or whatever relationship. But no, not unprocessed red meat. There's not a correlation between unprocessed red meat and all-cause mortality. What does that tell me? It tells me that if you're a 55-year-old CEO of a company and there's nothing that satisfies your hunger more than a nice juicy steak on Friday night after a long week at work with tons of stress and chaos and lots of mayhem in your life, that's probably something that you need in order to compensate for your high stress, high intensity lifestyle. And that's why when a lot of these people go low protein or low animal meat or vegetarian or vegan, they come back and they say, after a certain period of time, I felt like I just couldn't keep going. I was burned out. I was tired. I was fatigued. I had no gas left in the tank. Okay. And this is why I think that saying that you need to eat a low protein, low meat diet long-term. Well, what is your goal? I mean, if you go to a bodybuilder and you say that, they're going to respond with, well, I'm not going to be able to meet my goals of putting on X amount of muscle or leaning out or whatever if I restrict that to my diet to what you're telling me I need to. So I'm not going to do that because that's what their goal is. That's why the goals thing has to be the first conversation that you have in these things. So 
I don't worry about unprocessed red meat, and that's why I only shop in the butcher's case. And I'm very careful when I buy packaged meat, like bacon or sausages, that I'm staying away from all the food additives that get loaded into those things so that they can increase the shelf life, decrease the amount of product they lose before they can move it off the shelf, and then increase their margin. Okay, last topic. Fish consumption and all-cause mortality and meta-analysis of cohort studies. Although fish consumption may have an influence on specific mortality of major chronic diseases, the relationship between fish consumption and all-cause mortality remains inconsistent. They surveyed tons of studies on this, and here's what they came up with. The highest category of fish intake was associated with about a 6% significantly lower risk of all-cause mortality. Compared with never consumers, consumption of 60 grams of fish per day was associated with a 12% reduction in risk of total death. So 60 grams of fish per day, 60 times 7, if I got the math right, is 420 grams per uh, week. If you go back to the Blue Zone Diet Guidelines, they recommend something like um, fewer than 3 ounces up to 3 times per week. 3 ounces is uh, 28 um, grams. Uh, so basically that 60, uh, that 60 grams is about, is about two ounces. So they're saying two ounces per day, two ounces per day times seven days per week is, uh, 14 ounces total. That kind of lines up with, uh, this three ounces up to three times weekly. Well, that would be nine. So arguably the people eating more fish than that, uh, did better and re reduced their risk of death by get this 12% in risk of total death. That was the reduction, 12% reduction in their risk of total death. That's amazing, in my opinion. And that's why I like to consume, and I worked this out before, before I, I presented this, but it's something like I shoot for five to eight ounces of fish three to five times a week, particularly the high fat, low mercury fish, your sardines, smelts, anchovies, um, uh, uh, um, herring, uh, salmon are my, my top uh, go-to fish. I shoot for three to five servings of those of five to eight ounces. Why? It lines right up with this finding of fish consumption reducing your risk of death. And that's through the benefits of omega-3s, the benefits of minerals. And obviously I want to avoid the mercury because I know how bad that is from the work I do with mineral balancing and the amount of mercury I see coming out of people's hair, which is just crazy. So I hope this has given you guys some food for thought on what protein intake should be because you're hearing tons of competing opinions out there in the health and wellness world. And when you hear someone saying, well, you've got to eat protein, there's all these benefits to protein. You should eat this protein and that protein. You should add weight to this and you should add collagen to that. I don't want you guys to get overwhelmed and I don't want you to get distracted from the fundamental question you have to answer for yourself, which is what are your goals and how much protein is it going to take for you to achieve them? Because if you don't answer that question, then you have no business trying to answer the question of how much protein you should eat because it has to be tailored to you based upon your goals. So subscribe to stillmd.substack.com, become a premium subscriber, and maybe I'll answer your question on a Monday masterclass. If you've got any other questions, comments, concerns, whatever, go over to my Substack, drop your comments. I'm curious to read them. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. And don't forget to get outside. Also, before I forget, stillmdwellness.com free Thursday morning webinar every week. They're amazing. We get rave reviews about them. They're free just for being on the list. You would be crazy not to be on the list because these are too good for you to pass up. Thanks for watching. Take care. Have a great day. Don't forget to get outside.